difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with Genevieve Kosky and Keith Phipps. Tasha Robinson has used her talents for deception and intrigue to slip in with the film spotting crew for their top 10 films of the year show, but her nefarious plot will eventually fall apart and she'll join us next time. On the first half of this episode, we discuss the talent of Mr. Ripley, Anthony Minghella's thriller about desire and deception on the Mediterranean. In this episode, we'll return to Italy with Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino's coming-of-age film about a 17-year-old falling hard for a visiting American doctoral student in the summer of 1983. Timothy Chalamet stars as Elio Perlman, the precocious son of an intellectual couple who spends his days reading books, transcribing music, and gnawing on fruit from the family orchard. Army Hammer plays Oliver, a 24-year-old student who's in Italy for a summer internship with Elio's father, a professor of archaeology played by Michael Stuhlbarg. Elio and Oliver develop a friendship that steadily grows into a much more profound intimacy. The only problem is that summer ends, and what do you do with those feelings once it does? We'll talk about that after the break. Professor Perlman. Thank you so much. So nice. I'm very confident. I can show you around. That'd be great. Thank you. What do you do around here? Read books, transcribe music, swim at the river, go out at night. Sounds fun. All right, later. Just watch. This is how we'll say goodbye to us when the time comes. Later. <laughs> Meanwhile, we'll have to put up with him for six long weeks. <laughs> Muscles are firm. Not a straight body in these statues. They're all curved. Sometimes impossibly curved, and so nonchalant, hence their ageless ambiguity, as if they're daring you to desire them. Oh, to see without my eyes, the first time that you give. Is there anything you don't know? Boundless by the time I cry. You only knew how little I know about the things that matter. Build your walls around. What things that matter? White noise, what an awful sound. You know what things. You saying what I think you're saying? Shouldn't have said anything. Just pretend you never did. Nature has cunning ways of finding our weakest spot. So I want to give everyone's thoughts on Call Me By Your Name. Who wants to start? I'll start. I loved it. Yeah. The end. No. <laughs> Great. No. Wrap it up. I did too. You like, you love it too? Yeah, I love it too. Okay, then, let's, go, then we're I, done. I, I can. I can okay. All right, I won't go into any detail. Okay, well, we'll go, go ahead. We'll let, you, we'll let you go. I know it's a movie that so creeps up on you watching it, or at least that was my experience, mm-hmm. where it's, it's sort of this... You know, wonderfully escapist in some ways drama. You know, I I wanted to eat some apricots and hang out with in in that in that house. You know, uh, spend my days a little bit a little bit lazily. The relationship from the characters you know develops so slowly and and you know 
lazily at the, at the pace of a summer. It's a sort of generously paced film. And then by the end, good Lord, this film is so emotionally wrenching. I mean, I mean it's, <laughs> and you feel the heartbreak. You've been through this whole summer with these people and you can feel Elio's heartbreak at the end of it. Uh, I, I, I don't know. It's remarkable. I loved it. Yeah, it's a sensual film mm-hmm. in all respects of the word. And I've watched this film twice now and I neither time I came away feeling particularly devastated by the ending. And mm-hmm. I think that is wholly because of Michael Stuhlbarg's speech that he, uh, he gives to Elio uh, shortly before that and kind of talking about you know how lucky he is to have felt something so strongly and even though it comes with this loss like giving up that loss would come with giving up everything that it comes with Mm -hmm. so even though you know we end on this beautiful long shot of timothy chalamet staring into the fire with that sufjan stevens song playing like i can't really feel that sad like i feel emotional like as in full of emotion Mm -hmm. but i don't feel particularly like sad for the character because it feels like this summer and this experience is ultimately something that has formed him as a person and that's a good thing i think that's an appropriate feeling after the credits are done (laughs) (laughs) but i think in the moment uh i i I can't help but feeling um how sad elio has become i just like watching boys cry he'll get uh, he'll find his way again um it's hard i I think it's i i think doesn't donna bowman have a whole thing about how men crying on film just rarely works yeah or in life <laughs> maybe <laughs> but uh maybe- I mean, it's, you're so close to being the, the dawson's creek gif if, you're, if you don't if you don't do it well <laughs> yeah no i mean that's a, a beautiful moment don't don't get me wrong i'm i'm not saying because i wasn't sad by it i wasn't affected by it but you know there there is that little element of joy to it you know that there, I, I can't a, let go great of gift i mean what, we're kind of skipping ahead in a way to get to the <laughs> stuhlbarg speech because it's so important everything that he says to his son is so great i mean it's a great bit of fathering just because he's telling him that these feelings well, for, first of all he's validating this relationship mm-hmm. which is not in that time in place not a common thing but he's also expressing what i think is the theme of the film which is how important it is to feel things <laughs> I think yeah. that, that's the thing that kind of carries through from the beginning to the end and why it's the, the, such a sensual experience all the way through. You really feel this film. And then this character played by Timothy Chalamet, Elio, is to hold on to that emotion and not be left cold by it. I mean, the, the worst reaction I think his father is saying that he could have to the end of this relationship is to go dead, <laughs> you know, and to not allow himself to open up to someone else, open up to other possibilities and feel again. And so I think that's kind of where the film lands. This just the last 30 minutes of the film just destroyed me <laughs> on second viewing today. I just was crushed from the moment when they go off together for their last little go mm-hmm. around until from that point until the very end it was just kind of crushing to see and this in the way that something like before sunset or excuse me before sunrise is where it's just like there's only so much time until the train comes and they're going to have to be separated and what is going to happen to their lives after that and instead of approaching that moment with caution they go through it with all of their heart all the way to the end and that just that kills me i think that that's such a beautiful thing to do i I like what you say about this film being just about feeling things generally because i think that extends to the filmmaking and its focus on just sensory experience like one of the things that sticks out to me in this movie is just like 
how high the ambient sounds are in the mix. And, you know, so there's this aural component. Obviously, it's a beautifully shot film. There's this visual component. And it's just like, oh, it's so cliche to say it's a feast for the senses. But, mm-hmm. you know, like it does it does kind of like inundate all your, your senses, um, I guess, not touch but you know you could you could smell that apricot juice right yeah (laughs) or i know i i wanted some of stuhlbarg's uh espresso as well that sounded amazing (laughs) after after a long night of sleep to wake up and have have a nice espresso and fresh apricot juice which god i mean how much do those characters enjoy that every time they're treated to apricot juice i should have studied archaeology (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's all it's got all the benefits but the other the other thing i would mention too in addition to the sound is the camera. It's an emotional camera. And one of the shots that really stood out for me in the film, and I don't know if you'll remember it. Well, maybe you remember it because it's kind of something he flashes back on at the end, is just the shot of them in the town square. And the camera makes a fairly strange, seemingly unmotivated move upwards towards the top of this monument before moving back down to the, the characters. And it just it feels like it's engaged uh, in the action and it, I think I call it an emotional camera it reminds me of that film I Am Cuba which has had, had the same sort of technique of just constantly moving the camera and having that trigger so an emotional response from the audience and that was kind of a small moment where that happened for me yeah what like sticks out to me about that scene is kind of the staging of it in addition to the way it is filmed in terms of them kind of like circling each other you know like they start at the same point in the circle that surrounds the monument they proceed along opposite sides of it before they come back to meet yeah. at, the, at the top of the circle and like there's a moment where Oliver kind of is hidden behind you know because we're, we're from Elio's perspective so we can't see Oliver and it's just it's so beautifully encapsulating the uncertainty and the fear and the daring of that moment of what he's saying and it's yeah, just the way it's captured both in the staging and the camera work, a really great scene. Yeah, I mean, the power of them being separated and coming together as they do, that's a good point. I also really love, if you're talking about great shots, the shot of um, them riding off on their bikes and the camera just holding that shot as they go off into the distance together. Mm-hmm. Again, a beautiful... And, and, and again, a, a shot where they first separate and then come back together. Yeah. You know, like Elio speeds off ahead of Oliver and then kind of slows so that they can come back together. There's a lot of, in this movie, again, with staging, where Elio is sort of like barging ahead or barging away from Oliver. And I think it just sort of underlines the precocious nature of his character and I think kind of does a lot to make this relationship between a younger boy and an older man not feel as squeamish as it could because Elio is so seemingly advanced for, for his age. And that carries through to just the way that he, you know, forges ahead through a scene. Yeah, and there doesn't seem to be anything predatory, I guess, about the 24-year-old either. No, and I mean, he, Oliver is like very, very tentative. And he is like always following Elio's lead. Like he seems very aware from that moment where he kind of attempts to massage Elio and Elio backs away. Like from that moment, he's like, okay, like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do anything else, you know? So yeah. like Elio has to be the instigator, you know? And that is hard for Elio because he doesn't know what he's doing. And it just kind of contributes to this beautiful tension between them that when it does finally get resolved makes it that much more rewarding yeah i do like that little massage bit uh mm-hmm. and then of course they the reflection on it later on it's like i was trying to do it make yeah. a move 
move the hair and you didn't really pick up on it, kid. You know, but but there's a degree, I mean, to which Elio is precocious and, and advanced and extremely sophisticated for his age, but he is also a work in progress who doesn't really know who he is. I mean, he's on, in terms of his sexuality, on some kind of a spectrum of, you know, given that he also has a relationship with Marja. Uh, maybe he definitively goes... <laughs> More, a little more on one end of the spectrum yeah, I mean, than the other because I mean, he does I think, sort of I think break a, heart, a lot but. of gay men probably have an experience like that in their past, and it doesn't make them some prom less photo, gay, some prom photos, know? right? I don't think the movie gives enough evidence to make a final determination on that. Just as you know, it's not often easy to do that in life either. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the movie is also not particularly interested in defining or expressing some sort of universal gay experience or, or remarking upon it anyway. Like it is very much about this specific relationship and whether Ilya will go on to have only male-male relationships or whether he will go on to have relationships with many different genders like it doesn't really matter in the context of this film which is about these two people that aspect of it almost makes me feel really protective of this film in terms of it getting deep enough into the culture to where it becomes a thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a way i kind of want it to remain this small specific thing that we can appreciate rather than being part of the conversation and and being freighted (laughs) conversation it's always bad just (laughs) yeah sometimes it's good no, yeah, but but th- in this case it would be bad, <laughs> and I and I know this film has kind of like tiptoed into that area in a way that kind of freaks me out, but it hasn't quite taken off to the stratosphere yet. So I'm grateful. People so what, seem very protective of this film for the most part. Like the people who like it, I think recognize its specialness and aren't necessarily, I think, so inclined to pick it apart. And it's a, one of those things, one of those movies that I watch. And maybe T- Tasha, Tasha, I know, was not as thrilled with this film as yeah. the rest of us. So I, <laughs> Tasha was the outlier? <laughs> she was the outlier. So I don't want to say, I feel like suspicious of people who aren't seduced by this film in some way. It uses the tools of the medium to such seductive effect. And if you're, I don't know how you can love movies and be completely resistant to it, you know? Am I wrong? No. <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. No, no, I'm I'm trying to like reconcile that with the fact that like as much as I loved this movie, I am less certain that it is one that is going to like stick with me for years and years to come. Like it and I think that that may go back to just my feeling about the ending and like not feeling particularly emotionally devastated. Mm-hmm. Moved certainly, but not like memorably so by by the ending and it like it feels like the more and more I think about it, it just feels like a very pleasant viewing experience. Yeah. And that is a good thing. And that does not detract from the film at all. But I feel like it maybe makes it feel a little less enduring than it could be. Mm. But that's hard. That's hard to say <laughs> having just rewatched it's a the sca- film. It's, a, it's an escapist yeah, yeah, I think that's what I'm trying, yeah. to, trying it, to, to get at. Like, what, you know, what are you going to think about next time? Uh, Love my way plays. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> God, I love that dance. That, that I mean, that, I, I admit I don't come across that song that often on a daily basis. Mm. So on the when I do hear it, yes, I will probably think of. You're this not film. a 44 year old man with a Sirius <laughs> XM radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah those are some good uh those albums that's a good that was a pretty yeah. good period was that thing like the towards the end of when psychedelic furs were good yeah, it's kind or was of, that the sweet uh, sweet spot towards the sweet spot yeah i yeah. actually actually that's a good segue to before we move on to connection something i did want to talk about with this film i guess we could talk about it in connection to the talented mr ripley but i don't think we're planning to so i want to talk a little bit about like the period and like how mm. this does work as a movie in in 1983 and like for so much of this movie, it feels like it could be 
any of several decades, you yeah. know, and you do get these little moments like at the discotheque and stuff like that. But what struck me on my second viewing was how the political atmosphere of the era is kind of like percolating in the background. Like the, I guess the 83 Italian general election was happening and we do have some little like hints of that in in the background. And it actually reminded me a lot of The Graduate in our discussion of <laughs> sort of how the era played out in the background of this story. But other than little reminders like that, so much of this movie just feels like it could be in any year. Yeah, I mean, I think lifestyle-wise, if it ain't broke, you know what I mean? Like, why would yeah. you want to do anything differently than ride those bikes around? And, and if you're these people anyway live as they do uh, and, I, and i think the film acknowledges that in a very uh, clever way by identifying the location as somewhere in northern yeah. italy rather than any place specific so we haven't talked about the performances because those have been getting quite a bit of acclaim i mean timothy chalamet won two awards mm-hmm. in our own yeah. <laughs> uh, guild for both best actor and most promising performer. Scott uh, is talking about the Chicago Film Critics Association. Chicago Awards. Film Critics Association. So he cleaned up and, and uh you know, everyone is into to Army Hammer and his uh his kind of wedding reception dance moves. <laughs> um, so uh, what do you think what do you think about the performances? I'll work backwards actually with, with uh Stuhlbarg, uh who who plays Elio's father and, and I spent a lot of the movie thinking you know, I'm glad Michael Stuhlbarg is in this, um, and but I don't know if it needs Michael Stuhlbarg. And then you get to this one scene that just brings everything about the movie all together, and it's just beautifully expressed in this long monologue that 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 he he doesn't overplay it. I mean, it's just very sort of it's it's a strangely matter of fact expression of the deepest feelings this man has to convey to yeah. his son. It's so beautiful. Chalamet is it's one of those performances where you think maybe he'll he'll get a lot of acclaim for his next performance because he's such a new face and you know this is you know a movie he shares with Army Hammer and, and to a large degree uh, wasn't necessarily he could get best lead actor but but I'm glad he is. He's fantastic in this and Hammer is so charming. It's one of those things where it's like well, okay maybe it's okay that those big Hollywood movies didn't really work out for him all that well because he's just as comfortable he's more comfortable in this world really. He's a, he's the soulful Jude Law character. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Timothy Chalamet is just so incredible. So, I mean, like a lot of that, again, I think just boils down to his presence. He has one of those faces that like looks different from so many different angles. Mm-hmm. And this character, like you feel like you can watch him changing, like physically changing throughout the movie. And he seems so young at the beginning and part of that is like walking around in that bathing suit with that concave chest that he just like you know you could like break him and he just looks like such a little boy and then like compare that to him at the end with this sort of like flock of seagulls hair you know and (laughs) I don't know like to what degree that is just like how Timothy Chalamet looks and is versus like performance but it's just such a great match of actor and role it's such a great performance the greatness of it almost eluded me on first viewing because it's invisible in a way mm-hmm. he doesn't it's not showy none of these performances are showy um, i mean he cries a fair amount the one point i wouldn't make in terms of him is you're saying he does seem older as the film progresses but i mean there is a point towards the end of the film where he's in the car with his mom and crying and i mean i mean what is more a little boy than that having your mom pick you up from someplace and then and then crying all the way home it's uh, like in ladybird when laurie metcalf picked up Shersha ronan from timothy chalamet's house <laughs> and cried on the way home it, it seems only just <laughs> which also it? featured a sexual nosebleed scene in mm. ladybird with timothy chalamet i feel pretty good because i because I, as uh well as you uh, you all know but uh, listeners don't i get nosebleeds a lot 
It's a great but year tri- for nosebleed tri- on they're triggered, they're triggered not by anything. It just happens. But uh, that is interesting. Those are connections. Why? Yeah. If, if only if only one of them were already an established classic film, we could, have, a couple years. We could have compared them. But we should actually look for other connections, perhaps between Call Me By Your Name and the talent of Mr. Ripley. And so we'll be right back uh, to make them after the break. World War II, huh? Oh, no, this is World War I. Huh. You have to be at least 80 years old to have known any of them. Huh. I've never even heard of the Battle of Piave. Battle of Piave is one of the most lethal battles in World War I. 170,000 people die. Is there anything you don't know? I know nothing, Oliver. You seem to know more than anybody else around here. Well, if you only knew how little I know about the things that matter. What things that matter? You know what things. Why are you telling me this? Because I thought you should know. Because you thought I should know? Because I wanted you to know? Because I wanted you to know. Because I wanted you to know. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. And one very big thing they have in common is Italy when it's nice and sunny and and, uh, seems very, very uh, seductive. Is this the same Italy? It seems, it certainly seems that way. It's different regions though. I mean, the South and the North were until recently, fairly recently different countries in in many ways. And, but I think you get a more, more verdant, uh, shady Italy in uh, Call Me By Your Name. Then you you get sort of the the sun drenched, sandy Italy of of the South and, and talent, Mr. Ripley. Call Me By Your Name is just much more secluded, too, both in terms of the manner, I guess we'll, we'll call it, you know, or orchard, I suppose. But Tell to Mr. Ripley feels a lot more cosmopolitan for like they're in cities for one, mm-hmm. for one thing, and they are kind of jumping around between a bunch of them. And there's just a lot of people and stuff happening, whereas in Call Me By Your Name, like in those scenes when they go into town, there's barely anyone there. And, yeah. and you know, and I don't know if that's meant to be the how the town always is or if it's one of those places that clears out for the summer like we don't really get that context but you do kind of have the feeling that these people are kind of the only people you know you know hanging around and and tell to mr ripley it's it's just a bigger swath of the culture that we're seeing yeah i mean in fact uh in call me by your name Oliver asks straight up, what do you do around yeah. here? <laughs> you know, all his answer is that he kind of reads and waits for the summer to end, really. But yeah. um, that is a good point in terms of the regional specificity of both. But I would say that both films are doing everything they can to emphasize the sensuality, the, the, the sun, the feel of being in this. The shirtlessness. The shirtlessness. <laughs> the, 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 you know, just flat out kind of golden beauty of everything. Do you get a sense of like the vividness of certain items? Uh, the apricots, I guess, and uh, call me by your name. But like when they get the ice box and in mm, town, yeah. Mr. Ripley and those, those beers. I mean, you can really just you know it's like a four dimensional effect to see them uh, drink a beer on a hot day. So that's just uh, in both cases, I think really 
great filmmaking and really good photography too they're both quite beautifully photographed mm. and we don't see them only and so we don't see italy only in the summer in these movies you yeah. know like call me by your name very pointedly ends at hanukkah actually yeah. it might be the same night of hanukkah that we are recording this because <laughs> it, it is, this, is, the, the, is this the definitive hanukkah movie between this and meyerowitz stories which does not actually take place at hanukkah but i've seen it put forth as a yeah. as a Hanukkah movie. It's been a good year this for eight, Hanukkah movies like that aren't the, Hanukkah movies. The last, this is a last night of Hanukkah movie. All, all the candles think, are burning at one point. I think, I think it's only seven. Is it? I, it could, I thought, it could, I thought, it could I thought be I saw, I, saw, I thought I saw all of them and the Shamash. All right. Well, up, I, I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> but still, I mean, it's, it, it was good to see that little Hanukkah representation on screen. Yeah. In, it's, it's an underserved holiday. Well, and and tell to Mr. Ripley, like, there's also some scenes in, in winter, right? Isn't yeah, he's, go, well, he's, it's, isn't it Christmas time when uh, Freddie comes calling yeah, at last? Yeah, So it's, it's interesting that, like, winter is kind of when things start to fall apart in, in both of these stories or, or just when when things get not so lovely this, yeah. this the summer is a very important part of the italy component i think yeah in terms I mean, of the appealing nature of it call me by name is particularly good at giving you that feel of summer and just drifting into this mm-hmm. relationship in a really organic and even unexpected way uh, and the way it speeds up as you get to the end because, you know, their their relationship doesn't really fully form until kind of the final weeks. Then they're bemoaning how little time they have left, you know, and that's kind of how summer feels, too. You know, it's like, oh, crap, it's August. I know. <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. It, one of the things the two films have in common as well is an American character and a European character. And Ripley, you have, they're both American, both Dickie and, and Tom, but you have a visitor from America coming mm-hmm. to to Italy in the form of Tom Ripley and then you have a visitor in the form of Oliver Army Hammer's character coming to Italy and and you get a kind of an interesting contrast between cultures right and Elio is is cosmopolitan he's many things but he's not wouldn't call him Italian either you no, know? I mean his mother's French right and his girlfriend Marja is French, French. you know Timothy Chalamet, like he's got some some linguistic skills. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if he's like naturally fluent in in three languages, but you know he he pulls it off. <laughs> yeah, he really does kind of go in and out of everything just fine. I guess that's Europe for you. But yeah. it is it yeah. also it, it is a long tradition of James Ivory did the screenplay for this. Also did the screenplay for A Room with a View, and it's, there's a long tradition of stories where Italy is a place where you go where the rules of your culture don't quite apply. Kind of there's a space that's created for love to happen that might not happen otherwise, and so on and so forth. You're away from your own culture, and you're in a place where you know it plays into a stereotype, but you know maybe it's, it's more sensual. The blood mm-hmm. runs a little hotter in, in Italy. Uh, I mean, people are constantly lying on top of each other in this movie. Sure. You know, like there's the physical closeness between parents and children. And, you know, even like what the very first scene when Oliver arrives and Marja, Marsha, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, but like she she kisses him, you, you know, like yeah. that's just how people greet each other. There's a physical affection built into the culture that is not necessarily in America. Jenny would love it. She's, she's a big hugger. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and, Tina Belcher noise. <laughs> and, and there's also for anyone overseas, for these Americans going overseas, 
um, there's always that possibility of reinvention of of being able to define yourself and and spin some sort of new narrative that you could not back in your old life. This is a new place. These are new people, and there are new possibilities as far as you know adapting or or ingratiating yourself into this culture and getting the most out of it that you can. That said, like Oliver is incredibly at ease. Like he never feels like intimidated by the culture the way that I think Tom Ridley can be. Like Oliver, I think kind of represents sort of an American like character type just in terms of being so voracious and larger than life yeah. you know like that the the detail about him only being able to have one soft boiled egg because if he has one then he'll have two then he'll have three <laughs> and then he'll five like you know he's just someone who lives life at full volume you know and, and aggressively casual yes later, later. <laughs> and, and also and also just in one minor example of that early in the film is uh, he doesn't come down for dinner yeah I mean, this is like the first chance i suppose that he has to dine with his family i'm sure they've prepared something for, for him and he's like yeah, just tell him. Tom Ripley would never make that mistake. No, he, <laughs> you are invited not. to dinner. It, it, you show up to dinner. <laughs> I wonder if it's a mistake. You know, I think I think you know Oliver's probably used to things going his way and, and the, the world yeah. bending to his. I mean, role a little bit. He, yeah, I think we're definitely supposed to like see that as a very sort of privileged character who has not had a lot of strife in his life, and that makes him appealing. Well, he's know? he's he's good Jude Law. <laughs> <laughs> He's benevolent Dickie Greenleaf, um, though probably doesn't have the, quite as much wealth, but maybe that makes him more, even more appealing. Yeah, I give it time. He's a good-looking white dude. He, he he'll become a Winklevoss. He will. <laughs> it's only he will. 1983. He'll get all of the... He'll get both sides, because there's only one of them. He'll get yeah. the other non-existent Winklevoss's money. One thing we didn't get a chance to talk about in either segment that plays a really huge role in both is the music, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, there are so many big musical moments in, in, in both films. Should we, we should talk about those, right? Let's go with uh, Talon Mr. Ripley since we haven't mm-hmm. before the Tuvafa Americano scene, mm. which is great. I mean, because yeah. that's the height of things going great with Tom and Dickie when Dickie takes him to this club and brings him on stage and makes him part of that world. And I mean, the, the joy that Ripley feels being able to be that cool and on stage mm-hmm. and be able to participate that closely with, with somebody he's already so thunderstruck by, it comes across really well. And I was actually reading up a little bit on the song it's kind of a clever twist on the song because the song is about an italian person who is living off his parents wealth mm. and acting like a acting like a hotshot american mm. and so it's kind of like a little twist on that song but it plays great in the movie yeah. the talented mr ripley scene that kind of sticks out to me in terms of the way it uses music is a very early scene where tom is studying jazz you know <laughs> when he when he's getting all his his ducks in a row before he heads out to woo dickie and he's sort of educating himself about jazz and like i love the use of the classical jazz divide particularly like jazz is a sort of improvisational Uh, musical form and the way that that is echoed and how Tom has to move through this new life and constantly improvising and picking up what others are putting down so to so to speak so I, I just love the way that that scene sort of seeds that quality and establishes kind of the theme behind the use of jazz music in the film I think there's a lot of good jazz music. <laughs> I feel like it just really, especially when jazz starts to fade into the background, it's when the trouble starts. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it is it is sort of this this high spirited bop, bop maybe a little bit of edging into post bop jazz uh, that they're all listening to, and it's all really great. And also, I like that Chet Baker's feature.
Richard, so prominently in that scene you're talking about too. And he's not can't tell if it's a man or a woman. I think that kind of the uh, funny uh, nice yeah. little nice little touch for the character too. And and I think mm. boy, that's a uh, kind of telling you that 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 sort of melancholy, sensual, romantic tone of of, of the Chet Baker recording that tells you how you're going to feel over the course of this film too, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that until you pointed it out that the jazz does recede into the background. The the worst things get for Tom and the opera and classical uh, that was so much his life before he I went know. to Italy. He loves that he's so yeah. excited to go to the opera. Yeah. Um, but I, there's that bit, though, I think, where there might be a tipping point where he sings my uh, funny Valentine mm. to Dickie with so much longing. And, and it's it's this great expression of his, but also a deeply uncomfortable moment where I think that if Dickie were to really pay attention and recognize who he's really talking about in that song who he's really singing to that he would be freaked out by it probably yeah. so I, I like that aspect of two and the other thing i wanted to mention as well and is there are a couple of transitional cuts this was edited by walter murch who's an absolute genius he, he edited apocalypse now among other, many what other credits are Walter? well i wrote murch? one of the best books about film ever what? which is the in the blink of an eye in the blink uh, of walter murch right. but uh He's just a genius, and there's there's a bit where um, there's kind of a vocal thing that Jude Law does, where he imitates the sound of of drums, and that leads mm, right into yeah, it, right into yeah. right into a jazz scene. Yeah, when Dickie asks why he does that spooky thing with his neck on the train, oh, and like mm-hmm. spooky <laughs> becomes yeah. a cymbal noise. Yeah, that's a, like a beautiful interplay of kind of script plus performance plus editing. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's one of those things where the film is just as production is so classy all around like the collaboration is so good um, it's not as classy though as the way music is used in call me by your name yeah you know like you want classy that's something like, the guy spends his day transcribing classical music that's true <laughs> that is true and i just i you know i love big pop music moments and i mean you can't you can't beat the psychedelic furs thing can you Mm. Yeah, but that's, I mean, maybe it's just an era thing. Like, you guys are, are, well, and I mean, it's a great scene. I understand why you guys are fixing it up. But to to me, like, the musical moment that I think about is when Ilio is at the piano and Oliver comes in and is, like, asking him about what he was playing outside on the guitar because, of course, he plays both. (laughs) And he's, like, kind of talking about, like, play it like Bach would play it. Like, he's playing the song, like, all these different ways and, like, kind of, like, showing off, basically, you know? Like, it doesn't. No, I think it is an important scene, just kind of in terms of, again, showing Elio's precociousness, but also like showing the attraction going the other way. Because I think so much of Call Me By Your Name, like it's, I mean, you look at Army Hammer, it's like, of course, obviously he's in love with him. Who wouldn't be in love with him, you know? (laughs) And I think it's important that we get those little moments through Oliver's eyes of why Elio is so special, you know? And that is a moment where he's... I mean, Elio's being a bit of a dick in that moment. Like, I mean, he, you know, he's still in his sort of like prickly stage, but he's also clearly incredibly like smart and talented and alluring in his way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's got it. He does have to make up a certain amount of ground with yeah. Ar- Army Hammer, who is inhumanly pretty. And there's the, the other the other thing, I guess, too, in terms of music and call me by your name are the Sufjan. Steven songs, which mm-hmm. I, I think play great. What do you all think? Oh, about? yeah, absolutely. I, I was going to say the last one especially, but they're both perfectly used in, in, in the film. So, and, and, and that's an audacious choice. This is not some 
piece of music that's being dug up. This is music done for the film. Did you uh, see the item go by, the, the, like an early version of this, where uh, Sufjan Stevens like did the voiceover as the adult Elio? Oh, wow. I so, can't imagine. Well, yeah. you can never imagine yeah. like how a film would be ruined, surely. By I, I, I think we that. landed on just the right amount of Sufjan Stevens and, and Call Me By Your Name. Yeah. He can be a pretty divisive guy among uh, among music aficionados, right? Some Some find him too precious. I'm into it. Me too. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that Tell Mr. Ripley and Call Me By Your Name have in common is, you know, life, I guess, in and a little bit out of the closet. You have two characters who are trying to figure things out in terms of uh, who they're attracted to and being also being in a, a, a time and in, in place that would be unfriendly to the desire that they feel. Yeah, I think that's probably a little less the case in terms of Elio, um, not necessarily the time and place. Like, I don't think uh, 1983 Italy would be particularly welcoming of homosexual lifestyles, but his uh, specific personal experience and he, uh, with his incredibly supportive family, yeah. it's, it's what allows it to be such a tender and heartfelt story as opposed to an anxiety-inducing one. I, uh, <laughs> I rewatched Call Me By Your Name uh, with uh, some friends, all of whom are gay men, and it was really fascinating and amusing to me to watch them like slowly realize that there wasn't going to be an element of them getting caught you know and like how much fear they all felt that like oh they're gonna get found out you you know and it's gonna go bad this is gonna go bad and it never goes bad really other than you know ending the way that relationships tend to end and that being sad but like in terms of being found out or discovered as gay like that's not really a fear that hangs over call me by your name we also get the sense they're in kind of a rarefied circle as well there's the openly gay couple that, that comes to dinner and there's no attempt to hide who they are how they're living and and i think within this sort of protective area that sort of relationship could exist yeah so basically elio has like the easiest coming out of the closet scenario you know he could but it's still not easy yeah you know he doesn't i think he doesn't really know how his parents are going to react he doesn't Uh, i don't think he even knows how he feels yet yeah you know he's still he, but he's concerned he, about whether his mom knows, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and, but and she does. She definitely. She's the one who suggests they go off uh, on, on their little. Oh, vac- so you think you think it. because you think that Stuhlbarg is wrong in, in, in saying that he doesn't. Oh, think I th- she yeah, knows. I think he's saying that for Elio's benefit because he would be embarrassed because there's like that earlier scene where Oliver Elio and Michael Stuhlbarg's character are like uh, Elio says something about almost having sex the night before and like they're talking very casually about mm. sex and then the mom kind of says something and they're like nothing nothing you know okay but I think she is very aware of something going on between her son and Oliver like if you watch that actress like every time one of them leaves and then the other one follows them which happens so many times in this movie like she's always watching like and then she is the one who says at the end like maybe Elio should take Oliver to say goodbye like I think it would be good for them and it's obvious in the final scene that she knows I yeah, think for, yeah yeah for sure and, and by contrast uh, mm-hmm. the talent Mr. Ripley there is that that line that Ripley is trying to cross with Dickie the bath scene being the most prominent example of just like if I kind of just say this thing that could be interpreted as a joke or not you know I'm going to get some kind of a signal that's yeah. not going to get me hurt <laughs> or, right. or or not result in some 
catastrophic scene where where that that relationship ends. So so the threat there is real because Genevieve is feeling it in the pit of her stomach <laughs> watching yes. the movie. Do you think that the closet door shutting at the end of Tale to Mr. Ripley is supposed to be a literal symbol? <laughs> Yeah, probably. Maybe <laughs> Because so. if so, I like it a little less. <laughs> yeah. No. I thought when the rat ran across the, across the ledge before the oh. credits rolled, that was a little I like the ending the of The Departed, man. <laughs> I just, I thought, I think that, you know, it's just, well, we won't talk about The Departed, but I'll... I'll it did occur to me, Genevieve, I'll, but I think it's not so in your face that it's obnoxious. Yeah, yeah it is a closet, though, isn't it? Of a uh, mirrored closet. And like, man, yeah. man, that movie loves mirrors and reflections and, and split reflections you know yeah, uh, for sure it loves it as much as call me by your name loves apricots and various stone fruits <laughs> yeah as well as well uh, both of them should <laughs> i, I kind of want to i want to talk just a tiny little bit about both films as being prestige films one thing that's interesting about call me by your name is that it's written by james ivory who along with his producer ishmael merchant and his co-screenwriter uh, Ruth Power Javala. They own the art house from about from the late eighties through say the mid nineties with films like A Room with a View and Howard's End and Remains of the Day. And there was a certain just intelligent, well appointed, popular, heart rending art house film that they specialized in. And the talent of Mr. Ripley is part of that tradition as well because, you know, Miramax at that time, or really Miramax throughout its existence, did kind of put forward, I guess, if you wanted to be mean about it, sort of middle brow, but, but a lot of decorous period pieces they specialize in with filmmakers like Lassa Hallstrom and John Madden and Mengele. I think these these guys are great at it mm-hmm. in a way that so few people are. I mean, I, I felt watching Talon Mr. Ripley, I just felt such an acute loss of Mingella as a filmmaker, as somebody who could, who's capable of doing a Ripley or, a, or an English patient and really carrying you along in these sort of rich literary, you know, broadly accessible art house films. And no one's really taken their place. And I don't even think Call Me By Your Name necessarily falls in that tradition other than James Ivory writing it. It has it's way more sensual and arty and kind of I mean it does have a literary background. It's an adaptation it's an adaptation. But but I think the director's approach to it is a little not as staid or not as classical. There's mm-hmm. something, there's kind of, yeah. there's a lack of reserve that I think was characteristic. It's more jazz-like than classical, would you say? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so, but I was I, but I was pleased to see them both so closely together just as a revival of that type of movie done as well. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I feel like Merchant Ivory for a while became sort of shorthand for too tasteful and, and mm-hmm. not adventurous. But the good ones are really good. I mean, have, I didn't love every Merchant Ivory movie I no. saw, and I, and I dropped off a little toward the end uh, when they became less of a thing, you know? Yeah. But but boy, Howard's in and, and Remains of the Day and with a view, these are, these are great movies. Yeah. Remains of the Day, never better Emma Thompson, never better Anthony Hopkins. No, I know. Yeah. Room with a View is also... You know, we could have paired Room with a View with, with this really easily, too. But then we wouldn't have gotten tortured Genevieve again. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's very much another another uh, rules don't apply in Italy, and and you know it makes you want to you know upend your life and move to Italy now just for the sheer beauty of it kind of movie. Now more than ever, I have to say, <laughs> the talent Mister Ripley is available to stream on Stars if you have Stars, and it's available for rental on the usual services. You can also get it on Blu-ray and DVD. Call Me By Your Name is currently in Art House Cinemas Nationwide, and hopefully it will stay there for a little bit. Uh, We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. 
Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? I want to recommend a movie I saw about a month ago, but has really stuck with me since then, which is Dee Reese's Mudbound, which is a Netflix original movie that's making some minor waves this award season, and for good reason. This is a weighty film in both theme and tone, with a story that tackles the intermingling shadows of history and race that loom over the American South. Uh, It considers the fraught relationship between two families sharing the same plot of land in the days following the close of World War II. The McAllens, who are white and return from the city to farm the family land, and the Jacksons, black sharecroppers who have been working and living on that land in hopes of one day being able to have their own. This already fraught relationship gains a new level of interest and inevitably tragedy when members of the two families forge a bond based on their shared experience as soldiers returning home from a war that changed them irrevocably. Uh, This narrative takes a really interesting shape in the film via voiceover-driven segments that jump from one character to another, filling in backstory and filling out moments we've seen from other characters' perspectives. Uh, It's one of those films that you don't really feel like you have a full handle on until the final moments when it all comes together into this incredible crushing whole. It's nicely filmed, taking its title as an organizing visual principle. There's mud everywhere. Mm. But the performances are what really stand out here. They're really excellent across the board. But I want to highlight the two actors playing those returning soldiers. Garrett Hedlund as Jamie McAllen and Jason Mitchell, who played Easy e in Straight Out of Compton, playing Ronsell Jackson. Uh, together and separately, they give this film its heart. And both are wonderful surprises in a film that found a lot of ways to surprise me. Um, it's not really an easy watch but it's a rewarding one and i've like i said i found myself returning to it in my mind uh in the time since i've watched it i suggest you do the same mudbound it's on netflix i'm glad you brought that up because uh it's a terrific movie and it's a movie i feel like i don't know netflix i don't want to be down on netflix but they they just don't have the thing down where they you know the movies they put out feel like important movies that we should be talking about and and uh, this is an important movie we should be talking about but it you know it skipped theaters for the most part mm-hmm. and it's just another thing that shows up on netflix and they're, i'm not sure they're great at like promoting what they've got this is something that, that should not just be vanishing into the m section after a week of maybe getting the top spot on your netflix homepage. maybe not scott have you seen it yeah yeah i like i liked it one of, and one of the things I, I liked about it was how you could see the full spectrum of racism and the way it works mm-hmm. in the in this in this white family from you know Jonathan Banks, virulent, Jonathan Banks is incredibly detestable. Character. Right, I mean, the, you, you, Klansmen and 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 your know, overt virulent racism. I mean, directed towards someone who was just returning mm-hmm. from war. But then there is a subtler form of just expecting things, expecting mm-hmm. expecting them a, a black family to drop everything and to assist and to be, you know, just a, an assumption of of the way these roles are supposed to breakdown. So I thought that was really one of the more laudable aspects of of the film on, on top of the mud. I think there is a lot there is a lot of mud. A lot of good uh, mud. It's it's another film too where like that just makes the most out of a limited budget. It makes the right choices and gives you a great sense of uh time and place for probably not a massive amount of money. So uh I think it's worth checking out. And I have a big, I have a whole theory. I mean, Netflix is one thing, but I have a whole theory about why certain films about black characters and experiences succeed with awards givers and others don't. But that, that maybe we'll have a chance to draw that out another time. Mm, um, I know I've intrigued you, but, um, but this is also a film written and directed by a black woman for, for 
what it's worth. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully, we'll see be seeing more of her, and you'll 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 find no greater evangelist for Netflix than Dee Rees. She feels like her breakthrough from Pariah was able to find appreciators primarily for being yeah, available. I may be way uh, off. I just, my my criticisms are not scientific. I'm just sort of like. T- testing the, the temperature. Are, they're, they're, uh, no, I mean, there's definitely something, this kind of almost straight-to-video stigma built into Netflix, even though these are heavily invested, yeah, you know, in worthy production. This is a, a top 10 film of the year for me, and uh, I, I, I would like to see it getting a little more attention than it is. Alas. But it's there for you yep. if you want to give it attention. Yep. Just to click away. Please do. Scott, what do you got for us? I'd like to recommend a documentary called The Work, mm-hmm. uh, which I saw recently after it made several top 10 lists, including Cameron Collins's at The Ringer. He put it at number two on his list. Um, the film is about an intensive four-day group therapy program at Folsom Prison uh, where inmates and some men from the outside come together to share their feelings with each other. And the results are just absolutely volcanic. You know, many of these men are imprisoned for violent crimes and you can see how closely that violence commingles with a very base in immense pain that's been ingrained in them since since their youth. And because they're men, and all they know is to express their, their feelings through violence, it's stunning to see those feelings come out in a more positive and openly emotional way. Uh, and in some cases, they have to be coached on how to cry, on how to move their mouths, because they don't know how to do it. And when, they, and when it comes out, that's a moment of, of tension and danger as well. I mean, there, there are scenes where all the other men in the group have to like hold one of them back when he breaks down. I mean, it's that intense. So the film is currently available for rental from the usual outlets. I suspect it'll turn up soon enough on streaming services, and I would keep a box of Kleenex or any other tissues. I shouldn't be advertising Kleenex. I mean, there are all kinds of other <laughs> facial fine tissues. facial you're, tissues. You're in the pockets of uh, Big Kleenex. Big Kleenex, that's yeah. right. You can use a handkerchief, too, if you want that a throwback handkerchief, feel. that's right. Aloe, maybe you can have a little aloe in there. <laughs> uh, but I'm just saying, it's it's very moving. It's called The Work. And a great year for documentaries, it really stands out. Either of you seen The Work? Mm-hmm. No, I've heard, I've been hearing really good things. When, when did it come out? Because I feel like I've just seen a surge of discussion around it lately. And I, maybe that might just be because everyone's making their best of October. the year. It came out October. I think it was list. buried underneath a lot of post-TIFF prestige films that people were paying more attention to it was released by the orchard which got itself all knotted up oh, by the yeah. louis ck movie which they even at the time spent an absurd amount of money for and then of course lived to regret that and it just it well, just what, was... what happened <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about it off well, mic yeah, <laughs> we will. Um, but but i think it's one of those movies that people are going to catch up with and, and appreciate because it's an illuminating experience and also it kind of gives you hope for prison as a place where growth and reform is possible you know i mean because you, you see it you see it happening and at the very least even if you have people who are there for life you know a real reckoning happening with the sins that have been committed and, and with traumas that have happened in their lives so i love it the work keith i, I will check that out um I, I was just following a Patricia Highsmith uh, tra- train of thought here, and, and Highsmith has been adapted many times from everyone from uh, Alfred Hitchcock, who did Strangers on a Train, to Carol by uh, Todd Haynes, which is based on Highsmith's uh, pioneering lesbian novel, The Price of Salt, which she published originally under a different name. 
I like a film called The American Friend, which is another Ripley adaptation. It's an adaptation of, of Ripley's Game that was released in 1977. It's directed by Vim Vendors. It's a faithful itch adaptation of, of that book, which involves you know forged paintings, uh, sort of his Ripley's later career as uh, uh, in other aspects of, of the criminal life. Here he plays someone who kind of manipulates a dying or very ill picture framer played by Bruno Gans uh, into committing crimes. And plot-wise, it can, it can be a little opaque, especially your first few, and I've seen it in a couple of times. Stylistically, it's it's quite striking. Dennis Hopper is, is unlikely Tom Ripley, but it works in the context of this film and, and it allows vendors to play with a lot of his obsessions he was working with um, at the time. There's, there's a lot of, not a road movie as such, but there's certainly a lot of travel. And there's a lot of study of, of the way American and European cultures have, have mixed and mingled since, since World War II. And the, you know, the performances are great. Uh, you also get some, some very vendors cameos from Nicholas Ray and Samuel Fuller. Um, I, I think it's, uh, it's really worth your time checking out. It's a it film that um, Highsmith did not care for and then, and then did, changed her mind on. So I, I think it's, a, it's quite good. Have you, either of you seen that one? I saw it in college. Mm-hmm. That would have been a while ago. <laughs> I, I saw it on VHS originally, mm-hmm. and I thought it was pretty good. And then I watched it again on Blu-ray. Uh, they did just done a beautiful job just restoring the colors of it, the moodiness of it. It is, um, you know, stylistically, it's it's not a noir homage as such, but that feeling of of a, in a really good noir of you feel like someone has just made a mistake that's thrown them away their life and then sent them down a dark, dark path from which they will never return. Uh, that hangs over this film uh, beautifully. So I, yeah, would recommend it. It's also on Filmstruck, FYI. Oh, oh how go. about that? I have that. <laughs> I can watch that since I'm liberated myself from uh, the year 2017, generally, haven't I? Have, are you all done with your 2017 watching? I mean, I, I, no. I still have to see the work, but other than that, you know. <laughs> There's a bunch of stray titles like that that I haven't seen. Yeah, that's, you know. that's, that's I haven't true. seen film stars don't uh, die in Liverpool. Have you seen yeah. Rat Film? No. I want to see that. I want to see Beach Rats. I want to see all the rat movies. I want, yeah. to, see, I want to see the whole rat extended universe. Noctura- <laughs> have you seen Nocturama? No. You know, I'm just going through films on my top ten list. Does that have, have, does have all seen, bonus your, it, your next picture? Have you know? seen have you seen does that have rats Brawl in, it? Uh, in Cell Block ninety nine? No. You love that. Yeah, I know, I know. Anyway. It's only, and I hear it's only like four hours long too. Yep. Not a minute wasted. And that's it for this week's edition of the next picture show. Our next episodes come out January 9th and eleventh. Genevieve, what are we discussing? Listeners who are old enough to remember when Olympic skaters Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan were all over the tabloids may remember their story as a sordid tale of a lower-class athlete jealously coordinating a vicious attack to sabotage a more talented rival. So they may find it surprising to hear that Craig Gillespie's new movie I, Tanya not only attempts to rehabilitate Harding's reputation and paint her as a victim in the case, but that it does an excellent and entertaining job of it. Gillespie's movie, based on interviews with Harding and other key figures in the case, openly acknowledges that it's telling a subjective and contested story, full of conflicts of perspective and memory. And it turns that awareness into a lively, funny meta-narrative that acknowledges its sources and its audience in turn. Working from a suggestion from Twitter, we realized it would make a great pairing with Gus Van Sant's dark 1995 satire To Die For, another based-on-a-true-story criminal comedy about an ambitious woman, a bad marriage, an ill-conceived plot, and a desperate attempt at fame. One of these stories is a little more comic than the other, and one's a little more tragic, but they're both savagely entertaining about what it takes to get ahead in America. It blows my mind that some people don't know the Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan thing. 
Yeah, I'm starting to realize I'm old. Like, uh, like, like, like these are fictional characters. Like, do you that want me was... to tell you how old I was when Talented Mr. Ripley came out again? <laughs> I actually looked up some movies you might have seen in 1999. Did you see Tarzan in the theater? Was that yes. one you yes. saw? Um, Ed TV, maybe that was... Uh, I don't think I did see that A little sophisticated the probably yeah, for you yeah, at that age. Yeah, I was a freshman. <laughs> <sighs> this is too much for me. Uh, in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of the talent of Mr. Ripley, Call Me By Your Name, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episodes, where can we find everyone these days, Genevieve? You can find me at the culture section at Vox.com and on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Keith? You can find me at uprocks.com where I'm editorial director of film and television and on Twitter at kfips 3000 And you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. And you can find my work in such places as the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, uh, Variety, and I'm also the editor-in-chief of the Oscilloscope Musings blog, which had a really great year, I thought. And you can find our absent co-host Tasha Robinson at, on Twitter at, at Tasha Robinson and at The Verge, where she serves as the film and TV editor. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. And thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space at her home base, Genevieve Kosky's apartment. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Penoply Network. Please tune in next time. <laughs>